Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson and I'm in conversation with Jennifer Rankin. Jennifer Rankin is the Brussels correspondent of the Guardian newspaper. We're going to talk about Brexit, Jennifer, don't groan, but we're going to talk, given your expertise here in Brussels, from the kind of EU27 side, whether it's the, the institutions here in Brussels or certain member states, as opposed to the well-worn track of path of covering the Westminster bubble side of Brexit. So it's, it's getting quite close to yet another crunch time. Um, Mrs May is on a kind of another, yet another tour of negotiations with, with Brussels, quote-unquote. Um, is this all for show, or is there, some, is there some kind of real significant substantive purpose behind it? Well, I think certainly for the Prime Minister there is a purpose behind it, but for the EU, going to, to use the cliché of the hour and nothing has changed, that the EU is still insistent that they don't want to reopen the withdrawal agreement, although they are prepared to discuss the political declaration. Right. And the grey area is whether there, be, there can be some further assurances that give confidence to MPs on the Irish backstop, so the, the, the fallback plan to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland that's become this totemic issue. So, uh, so for, Theresa May would certainly like to secure uh, what the government is called is calling legally binding changes but it seems very unlikely she will she will get what she's after from the EU. Well as you know she's been criticised by many people uh, for running the clock down in other words uh, just playing for time uh, so that when she comes back to the House of Commons at some point it's, it's you'll say it's my deal or no deal at all and the clock is ticking. To what extent to be very direct, is the E27 almost complicit in that? They are being very courteous and going through the motions of, of talking to Mrs May and her team, whether it's Michel Barnier or Jean-Claude Juncker, but in effect, are they not just um, being courteous, they're actually part of the, part of the plot? Well, I suppose that they, you mean in the sense that they're both sort of colluding in, in running the clock down. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't see it that way, actually. Certainly, I agree with you on the courtesy point, and Michel Barnier is a, exemplifies that. He's always been very careful in his language throughout these negotiations and has avoided some of the more maybe hot-tempered language that we've seen from others, such as Donald Tusk. But when it comes to the clock, I think they really are very anxious to get the deal nailed down, and what they don't want is, is, a, is a dramatic cliffhanger finale at the end of March when we have a will they, won't they make the deal summit or get the deal over the line in the House of Commons. And I think for the EU it's all about wanting to be on the right side of history when it comes to Brexit. The EU doesn't want to be blamed for Brexit and that comes across very strongly to me when I talk to diplomats in this town and they they have a sort of air of resignation, of frustration, of intense irritation about Brexit, but they say, well, we will keep on trying. You know, if, if there's a way to salvage, if there's a way to get this agreement, we will keep trying until the last moment. But as you know, I mean, it is being said here in this town in Brussels that the E27 is reluctant to make any further concessions until, because they feel that, and it's been proved again this week in various votes in the House of Commons, that, sh that Mrs May cannot get the support in the House of Commons for whatever concessions the E27 may choose to, to offer at this very late stage. So, therefore, people are saying that it'll be, as you suggested just now, an 11th, a classic Brussels 11th hour denouement. And so something magical will be pulled out of the hat uh, at, the, at the European summit in, in about five weeks' time. Do you agree with that? I, I don't see this as one of those classic 11th hour, five minutes to midnight uh, 
compromises where something emerges. I think what could em emerge at, the, at that summit in March, just a week before Brexit Day, could be an extension of Article 50. That to me seems like a, a very likely outcome at the moment. But I think that the dynamic is, is sort of working against a, a last-minute compromise. And the, the EU, I think, will, will certainly stick to its principles on not reopening the withdrawal agreement, on not unpicking the backstop, because I think that would just drive a coach and horses through EU unity. It would be so damaging and so destructive for the, e, for the union after Brexit. It would send such a, a terrible message to small member states that at the end of the day, the, the rest of the EU will, will throw you throw the Irish under the bus in order to 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 meet the the demands of a, a big country that's leaving. So I don't see that that happening. But th there could be tweaks to the uh, you know could be tweaks, could be reassurances. I don't think that could be ruled out. Well, well, let's talk then. You mentioned the extension of Article 50, and I want to talk to you a bit about that. Um, for maybe for obvious strategic reasons or just tactical reasons, Theresa May is reluctant to even think about the possibility of an extension of Article 50, as you know. Uh, having said that, there must be discussions going on between the UK and, and, and Europe, quote-unquote, about the, 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 the need, never mind the desirability of extending Article 50. Are you, are you aware of any kind of serious discussions behind the scenes to that effect? I'm certainly aware that both, uh, the EU27 is, is talking about it a lot. They're talking about it a lot among themselves, and they're trying to guess what might be the, the best possible e extension, the, the, best, the best way forward for them without trapping the EU in this never-ending Brexit psychodrama. But in terms of, um, of Westminster, I still get the impression that the government is, is very much uh, holding the line that they're, they're very reluctant even to consider this question, although I've no doubt that civil servants will be working on all the contingency plans and they'll be thinking five steps ahead uh, as to what might happen. But I don't think we've had a, we, we haven't had a conversation between both sides for that extension and the EU say that's because the UK needs to ask for an extension and so far the Prime Minister is right. refusing to do that. If the UK were to make finally this, this request for an extension of Article 50, as you know it has to be accepted or approved unanimously by all member states, do you think that unanimity would be relatively easy to obtain? I would say in, in the long run, yes, but there could be some bumps along the road. You could suddenly find, just for, for example, Spain raises a problem about Gibraltar, right. or maybe Poland has a last-minute issue. So I think you can imagine you can imagine these kind of hurdles coming up but I think at the end of the day that no one would want to be the country that is effectively pushing the UK out of the European Union when it had made a request to stay. I think still the balance is that most countries think that it would be better if the UK did vote to stay albeit or, or did decide to stay albeit that there are trepidations right. about that kind of decision but I don't think anyone would want to say no we're closing the door we're not going to extend article 50. Well, it seems to be uh, sort of agreed by everybody who thinks about these things that if the UK were to ask for a, a, a relatively short-term extension, a so-called technical extension to, you know, for the time to implement the withdrawal agreement, for example, that would be sort of churlish, to say the least, of the E27 not to accept it. But I'm hearing, and I want to ask you whether you've heard similar things and even more than to move in these circles, that the E27 might even pose a condition of a quite a lengthy extension. What they seem to be saying is we were reluctant, we the U27 are reluctant to grant, say, a three-month extension and then another three-month extension, another three-month extension, kind of prolonging the agony. If the UK wants this extension, we're going to sort of insist on, on it being relatively lengthy. Are you hearing that? I think that that's definitely one school of thought that has quite a lot of backers and 
recently Sabina Vayan, the, the deputy Brexit negotiator, gave a, a speech at a, a rare public event, and she picked up that point herself that many member states she said don't want to be don't want to have these rolling extensions that they right. don't think that would be a good situation to be in so there is a school of thought that it would be better to have one longish extension rather than a short extension that could end up in another request for an extension or potentially a, a crash out brexit that doesn't necessarily mean certainty but on the, on the other hand, I think to also to add a caveat to what I said earlier, the, the question about extension always depends on what the extension is for. Right. And, and the EU have said many times that they won't, they won't give an extension simply to prolong the agony, to have more conversations about the Irish backstop and uh, the search for technological solutions or the unicorns on the horizon. So there really has to be a purpose behind this extension. But I think that the, the purpose could be could be fairly widely drawn. It doesn't right. have to be as specific as, say, an election or a, or a referendum. But it's, it's, it's really going to depend very much on how the government makes that request. Well, I suppose, yeah, because the E27 is saying, and, and relatively understandably, that um, you, the UK, just need more time to work out what you want. I mean, they, they've had you know, all this time to, to, to express their, their, their concerns and desires and their objective of the UK in the Article 15 negotiation. But as we come close to this 11th hour, it's still not terribly clear what the, at least the House of Commons and the, and the government want. So I, mean, the, I can understand that the E27 are reluctant to, to sort of in, in, interfere in constitutional arrangements in, in a member state by saying you will give an extension on condition it, it's a, for an election or for a second referendum. But by, it seems to me, quite a subtle way, but let, let me ask you the question, by by granting or ins insisting on a, on a, a lengthy period of, ex of an extension as a way to be this extension to be granted. It's a way for the E27 to sort of steer the UK in a certain direction, no? That's, that's, that's true, but I would just add the caveat that the that EU leaders have never discussed the question of extension, so it's right. never gone through that internal process okay. of going through diplomats and then Sherpas and then to EU leaders. So a lot of what we hear about extension is really the, the talk and the yeah, personal views, right. expectations of various diplomats in this town. And while there is a certain view, and I do think quite a few people sort of in, in, under a certain scenario would support a longer extension, depending on what it's for, hmm. I don't think that could be, we can take that as the fixed and final position. And we'd really have to see you right. know, when it came down to it, what EU leaders say. And, and EU leaders, they do have a tendency of taking a very strict interpretation of the treaties of not right. wanting brexit to um to to trample all over the rest of the eu's business and i'm sure that's what yeah. they'd be weighing up again when it came to an, a question of extension and therefore could it be since it has not been discussed formally but could it be discussed formally for the first time at the next european council on the 21st of march or is that premature no i don't think it's premature at all i, I mean to me that that seems like a very likely outcome especially right. if at the end of this month, we 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 see the House of Commons reach a you know, reach maybe a more definitive position on where they stand. I mean, mm. I think the the vote at the end of February could be a moment of truth for for the House of Commons. Although we've 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 seen or expected those moments before, and they haven't quite arrived. So so yes, I think extension could be on the cards in, in March. Well, let me ask you a kind of classic geeky Brussels question then. Uh, if there were an extension going beyond you know May when the European Parliament elections take place, how does how do you get round this 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 relatively important issue of of uh, the European elections? Uh, 
and uh, UK participation in those European elections? I think it's a, it's a great question, and it's and although we might think of it as a Brussels geeky question, I think it's a question that soon we could have, you know, it will be a really burning political question because EU officials. Uh, contacts that I talk to here are really adamant that the UK cannot be in the European Union and not be represented in the European Parliament, right. assuming that that extension will be running beyond the beginning of July when the next European Parliament will be taking up its, uh, when MEPs will be taking up their seats. So then that falls to the question, well, the UK should have elections. Right. Uh, there are some people who think maybe there's a fix where you could get MPs from Westminster sitting in the European Parliament, a kind of reverse accession model where you remember when Bulgaria and Romania joined the EU and they they sent delegates to the European Parliament rather than elected MEPs. Right. So some people are looking at this this kind of solution or maybe, um, maybe you allow existing MEPs to extend their mandate but then that runs into all sorts of questions about treaty change and ratification in national parliaments it's a whole other set right. of headaches so I think this is going to be a very difficult issue to say the least when we if if we are talking about a long extension okay well a final question then Jennifer I mean as we look to the future now even though it's slightly unpredictable um, who's on the EU side uh, as opposed to UK side who is in effect, running um, Brexit at the moment. I asked the question because obviously, officially, formally, it's Michel Barnier and his team. You, you uh, mentioned Sabine May and his deputy, but one hears more and more talk about Jean Claude Juncker thinks he's quite good at this kind of negotiation, and obviously, his very uh, powerful um, Secretary General Martin Salmai. There is the former role also Donald Tusk, President of the European Council. He has his own Brexit team, and then of course there are you know some member state heads of government, heads of state who may be starting to take a more Direct interest as we as we look beyond sort of Brexit, the formal Brexit date, end of March, and to the the next few months in the year. Who do you think, in your view, will be directing more and more Brexit uh, as we go forward? It's a very interesting question. Like who actually controls and, and runs Brexit? And the, the yeah. larger question is who really runs the EU? Because on the one hand, you do see that Michel Barnier is taking his instructions from EU leaders, but on the other hand, the Commission are the ones with the technical expertise. So they're often shaping what the answers will be that uh, the EU leaders eventually you know, lay out in their guidelines and, and statements. And then on, but then on the other hand, you do see that EU leaders very early on, they took very big political positions on Brexit, the fact that there could be no cherry-picking of the single market. So once these broad principles were laid out, that, would, they, that left, I think, a certain amount of latitude for, for Barnier and his team to to interpret what they see as securing the EU's interests. But now you see occasionally questions when times when member states are actually questioning the approach of the Commission, certainly when it comes to no deal planning that there was... And that's quite, that's quite new, is it, this, this interest of member states? It's something that's, um, that's been present, I'd say, for the last year at least, where okay. you member states and have been sort of raising questions about sometimes about the Commission's approach, but it's never really... It, it's been there under the surface, but it's it's. But at the end of the day, the EU's always managed to sort of keep the unity together, and it's never broken out into into the open. I think, and maybe maybe that will be harder though to maintain after Brexit, um, assuming Brexit happens. Once you do get um, into the negotiations on the future relationship, and once you, and p potentially if we were in a no deal scenario, then you might see different interests of, among different member states coming to the fore. So right. it's a, it's a, that's a very sort of long 
way of saying that you know, there are many people running and controlling Brexit, and you mentioned the Commission as well. And, yeah, and the Council. Uh, so um, so there, there are many players and different, different actors here. And I think depending on the issue, sometimes, some, sometimes different actors are playing as sort of a larger roles. Okay, well, we, we have to leave it there, Jennifer. Thank you very much for your time. Jennifer Rankin, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.